Good morning again, church. Thank you so much for being willing to to catch this today. Hopefully you've been able to do that. Your kids aren't absolutely losing their minds at home right now, and you can focus a little bit. Uh, The first passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning is from Isaiah chapter 53. We'll look at a few verses there. So if you want to head that direction in your Bible, you may. Um, We are in the middle of a sermon series called Reforged. Uh, The idea of Reforged is, as you heard in the video, that we are in the process of melting down and refining and reshaping our vision as a church. So in October of 2020, we took some time, about four weeks, to to try to present and explain the need, some of the reasons why we might reevaluate, why we might change what we do and why we do it. And you as a congregation, you as a body of Christ accepted that, you've been very excited, you've been very willing to move forward in this process, and so the point of this series is not to be redundant, and to just rehash a lot of things that we already understand, it's to try to take each of these seven principles of our new vision and apply them, to drill down into practical application, not only for the church as an organism, which is important, but for you as an individual, because what I know is, in my own life, if I don't find value specifically in something, it doesn't matter if some organization I'm a part of values it, I'm pretty good at disassociating myself from stuff that that doesn't matter to me. And so I want this to have traction for you because if God will do that in all of us as individuals, it's going to be really easy as a congregation to get excited about moving forward into what's next in the life of our church. We started two weeks ago looking at the core principle of our vision, which we express in the phrase behind me, it's all about Jesus. This is the core idea of what it means to be a part of True North Church, and it's what we want to be true for all of us when we gather together. So if if we're doing ministry in the city, we want that ministry to be about Jesus. If we get together on a Thursday night for a night of prayer and worship, we don't want to be so consumed with our own problems that we're not paying attention to God working through them. We want to keep him at the center. We want to keep him high and lifted up. And so we talked two weeks ago about how to do that, about how to let go of some things that maybe are getting in our way a little bit. Um, And then today, what we're going to do, excuse me, last week we we looked at the first outcome of that. We moved out from that central ring into what we call the internal facing ministries of the church, the the first internal facing outcome of it being all about Jesus is that we belong. We belong to Jesus first and we belong to each other. And so we unpacked a little bit what that looks like, what the biblical precedent is. And then I challenged you and I hope you took this challenge in your life group. Certainly my life group did. We had one of the most rich and robust life groups that I've been a part of in my two years at True North on Wednesday night. Uh, But we chose to tell the truth to each other, to be honest. And to not hide anything and to not dance around the truth or worry about how people were going to respond or react. And when we did that, we gave each other a gift. We gave each other the opportunity to be forgiving, to be welcoming, to represent Jesus Christ to each other. So I hope you had the same experience. Today we'll move into the second outcome. If it's all about Jesus, then we say this, we behold Jesus. We look to him high and lifted up. That's an outcome of it all being about Jesus. If Jesus is not at the center, if he's not at the core of what we do, then we'll behold something. We're going to get into that a little later this morning. We're going to read some scripture where God's going to challenge his people when they've been staring at and loving and adoring something that's not him, and he's going to show them how off the rails their lives get so quickly. So that's what we're going to dig down into. It's all about Jesus, then we behold Jesus high and lifted up. When I was 19 years old, uh, I had the chance to attend the largest Christian worship gathering of college students in the United States. This is an event that still happens annually in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the Passion Conference. And uh, I wasn't really excited about going. I actually ended up coming back from college over Christmas break. I attended a church in Dallas where I went to school, but the small town of Longview where I grew up, uh, the church that I was a part of was going to take a group of students to Passion. And it wasn't a group of people that I really knew because I had left Longview during the school semester to go to college. 
And then other people from other small towns had moved to Longview to attend a number of small Christian colleges that are there or in the surrounding areas. And so I, I wasn't really connected with this group of people. It was kind of an accident that I even ended up on this trip. Um, and we, the way we chose to travel there to get to Atlanta from Northeast Texas was by charter bus. And if you've ridden on a charter bus, you know that there's really only two rows of seats on the charter bus that are any good at all. Uh, I call these two rows the demilitarized zone, and I'll explain to you why. If you're on the back half of the charter bus, uh, maybe at first it seems exciting to you. Like if you've never ridden a charter bus before, you just are thinking about how school buses were when you were a kid. The back of the school bus is where the party is, right? That's where the rowdy kids sit and the chaperones just can't really seem to be bothered to walk all the way back there and check on the kids and so the kids kind of get away with whatever. So if you, if you translate that to a charter bus, you expect to get on the very back row, you're excited, nobody's gonna mess with you, you can do whatever you want. And then the first time somebody gets up out of their seat and comes back to the bathroom, you realize you are gonna have intimate personal knowledge of every bowel movement that happens on that vehicle for the duration of the trip. It's not a good experience. You end up having to breathe through your pillow until you get where you're going. And then the front half of the bus isn't much better because all the grown-ups, all the adult chaperones, they know not to sit on the back half and so they sit on the front half of the bus where they're prepared to interrogate you, a 19-year-old if you're me, about all the ins and outs of your life because they think that that's what God put on their heart for that week. And maybe he did, but a 40-something-year-old man who hasn't spent a week apart from his wife and job in a very long time is going to struggle to connect with a young man like me. And so, so I showed up late the day that we loaded the bus, and I knew better than to sit on the back half, and so I made my piece, because the DMZ was already full. Those two rows go quickly. I made my piece to sit by a guy and... I don't know, I think he thought that I thought he was cool, and that's probably better than the alternative. So anyway, we get to this event, and it's kind of an all-day thing. It takes three days, and each day it's packed from early in the morning until late, late at night. And so we get to the second night, and everybody's exhausted. So, so tired. And I want you to understand, at this stage in my life, I was, the best way I can describe it is I was swimming in, in confusion. I didn't have any solid ground. I, we, we've talked before about how when we love another person, one of the things that we do for them is we give them solid ground to push off of so they can make decisions, so they can change their life if they want to. And I felt disconnected from anything like that. Um, I had been in a very long dating relationship that had broken up just about eight weeks before this point. I was questioning my own faith. I had actually kind of made a wager with God that I would go to this event, this passion conference, and I had a, about three big questions about the Bible, questions that I felt that the church I grew up in had never addressed and maybe had even avoided or ignored about God being in control, God kind of, how do bad things happen to good people? You've asked these kind of questions yourself. And so I, I told God, if you don't answer these questions for me in these three days, it might be time for me to try something else. And, and so I was, I was in this place of like feeling really disconnected from the rest of my group, there's thousands of college students standing up, lifting their hands, worshiping the Lord, praising him, just totally recklessly abandoned. And a lot of the time, I was just sitting in my seat because I, was, I wasn't going to fake it anymore. I would have at one point in my life. I would have just gone along with that so that everybody thought that maybe I was hyper-spiritual too. But I just, it felt so empty to me. And I knew that even if I wasn't going to follow God, I could at very least respect him enough to be honest. And so that was where I was. I was kind of in a, a position of passivity. I was waiting on God to do something. And we got to the second night of this event, and I don't even remember who the first speaker was. I think I slept through what he said, so uh, sorry, whoever that was. But the, the second guy got on the stage, and right out of the gate, immediately he was just commanding. He wasn't funny. He wasn't really dynamic. He's an older guy, but he just, he just grabbed me. What he had to say was gripping me right out of the gate. And across about 50 minutes, I had an experience unlike any other that I had ever had in church in my life. 
and, and I probably have, have, am close to setting the world record for having attended church services, okay? I grew up in a Christian home. My dad worked at the church. We, six times a week we were doing something, and I was sitting under Bible teaching, and it had never felt like I could really see Jesus before. I'd heard about Jesus. People talked a lot about him. They'd exalted him in front of me. I'd sung songs about who he was, but I never, thought that I, I never felt that I could really sense him fully and see him. And so this was my experience. This, this faithful pastor just slowly working his way through scripture, preaching on God's glory and the value of God, the value of God's ways, not just that God is confusing and I have to submit to that, but that it's good for me that I can't understand God, that it's good for me that I can't understand God's thoughts, that I can't always understand his deeds. And this is going to sound ironic to you, but the, the larger my view of God got, the more comfortable I felt with him. I went from needing all of my questions answered because the God that I had had inside my little box wasn't cutting it for me, and I felt God blow the walls off of the little room I was keeping him in in my heart, and I just got a glimpse. I just got a taste of, of what he was, who he was, and the verses that I'm going to read to you now became real to me. This is where that pastor that night landed the plane, and I would say that this understanding of who Jesus is is at the heartbeat for me of what it means to be a believer. It's from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is foretelling, he's, he's preparing God's people to receive the Messiah someday, and he's talking about a person who hasn't been born yet, he's describing a Messiah who's going to come, but he uses past tense, so that's why I want to clarify that for you, it's a little confusing. Isaiah says this in chapter 53, beginning in verse 7, the Messiah was oppressed, the Messiah was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. There's a lot of imagery there for you if you're a person living in ancient Israel, having put your hands on a sheep and confessed your sins so that it could die in your place. The prophet isn't just making this up randomly as an analogy. This is supposed to be very meaningful. He says in verse 8, By oppression and by judgment the Messiah was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In other words, nobody understood what was going on with this guy. The people who are leading him to the slaughter don't even understand the, the magnificence, the significance of the sacrifice that he's making. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now here's where it just slapped me in the face, okay? Yet it was the will of the Lord, of God, to crush him. Who? The Messiah. In other words, your Bible is telling you it was God the Father's plan to crush God the Son. The Father has put the Son to grief, and when his soul, when the Messiah's soul makes an offering for guilt, then he will see his offspring. In other words, when that Messiah dies and his soul goes out of himself to pay a price for sin and guilt in the world, he will win many to himself. His offspring are you and I, and he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The moment that that landed in my heart is still vivid to me. It was like time slowed down. And, and for the first time, I, I didn't just feel hollow or empty or like I was searching. I actually became very aware of this incredible weight on my chest. I mean, it almost felt like there was a car balancing by one tire just right in the middle of my ribcage. Just this heavy, it wasn't anxiety, it wasn't panic, I could just feel that there was this like sense of, of, of importance 
to, to the evil in my life. Like I wasn't just this little insignificant cog in the giant wheel of the universe, but, but that my own rebellion against God was horrifying. It was disgraceful. I had such a poor understanding of who God was and how good God was that I had refused to worship him. And so I responded. I closed my eyes in that moment. People are getting back up around me. They're, they're raising their hands. The guy's done preaching. And I just put my head down in my, in my hands. People probably thought I fell back asleep again. But in my heart, I took that emotion. I took the questions that I had come into this conference with, all this pent-up, built-up, just fear and aggression toward God. And for the first time, I let myself just pull the trigger. I mean, I just aimed it at God, and I went, look, here's what I have to give you. If you're going to tell me that you want everything, you, you want to go to a cross like this, you want to get beaten and killed on my behalf, my sin is ugly, God. It's disgusting. I don't have anything good to bring you. And I was sorry, church, like for the first time in my life, I really hated my sin. I didn't just see it as an inconvenience. It wasn't just something I needed to work on in hopes that I would get better someday, eventually. I was so, so sorry for my life. Not just a few things I had done wrong here and there, but my whole life, I repented for my whole life. From my first breath, I said to God, I am sorry because I have not followed you. I haven't cared about you. I haven't wanted what you want. I don't, my life's been my life plus Jesus like as an extra sidecar on my motorcycle, which is ridiculous if you know Jesus. I repented of all of that and I knew for the first time in my life that my whole life was forgiven. I trusted that. And so I, I mentioned this earlier. Two weeks ago, we discussed the idea of keeping Jesus at the center, and for some of us, we've been trying to do that, right? You've been around church long enough. This is not a new idea to you. You've heard people say that they want to be gospel-centered. There's kind of a buzz phrase in Christianity right now. But I wonder for you if you've struggled to do that, if you feel like maybe, like me, you go to a conference or a retreat and it sticks for 10 days or so after that retreat is over. You come home, you go back to your normal life, and eventually things just fizzle out and you feel like you go back to normal I would argue and I would expect, not knowing you individually in your story, that probably your inability to keep Jesus at the center is directly connected to not beholding him, not seeing him clearly. I think that we struggle sometimes if our introduction to Jesus is the church first. The church is, is the right place for a person who belongs to Christ. It's the body that he joins us into. But sometimes, because churches are made up of people, they do a really bad job looking like and sounding like and feeling like Christ. And so maybe what you've done is what I did, and you've tried to repaint your life to look like a Christian. You've tried to stick on, like pin the tail on the donkey. You've tried to just tack on good deeds and righteousness and Bible verses so that hopefully things work out eventually. And you know that there's this gap in your understanding of Jesus, but you're just kind of waiting for that to get filled in eventually. Maybe you think that you're not mature enough yet. Maybe somebody's even told you that. You just need more Bible study, etc. I'm not trying to warn you away from spiritual discipline, but what I want to invite you to do today is maybe take a breath in and then out and instead of trying to make yourself into someone that you're not, let's see if we can just get the eyes of our soul up off of us, up off of staring at ourselves and onto Jesus. And I think that if we can do that, excuse me, he'll meet us here and he might have something for us. So that's the concept I want to drill down into. Let's go to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't care to skip around with me this morning, we'll have the verses available for you as well. We're going to be in John chapter 3. And if you have ever been advised by a youth minister or a pastor to start reading your Bible. You were probably told to start in the book of John. That's typically where we point new believers so they can get to know Jesus. And you probably made it far enough before you quit each time to get to John chapter 3. This is a story where Jesus interacts with a man who I believe is doing everything that he knows to do to try to be close to God. 
and he just can't figure it out. And so Jesus meets with them, and this is what happens. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, I tell you the truth, and I say to you, unless a person is born again a second time, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a very good question. Jesus answered and said, I tell you the truth, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't be amazed when I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus is flabbergasted. Verse 9, he says to Jesus, how can these things be? He's just reeling. He has never heard anything like this before. Jesus answered him and said, aren't you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. I say to you, we speak of what we know and we speak of what we can bear witness to, but you don't receive our testimony. You, you say that we're lying. You're not following me. You're not believing me, Nicodemus. Verse 12, If I've told you earthly things and and you don't believe, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you have it backwards. You've been trying to understand God. You've been trying to figure him out. And, and set up this sort of cause and effect relationship with him where you do good stuff and he owes you blessings. And it isn't going to work for you, Nick. I believe that Nicodemus is actually trying to be God-centered. I think that's what he wanted. I don't think you join up with the Pharisee party unless you believe on some level that the law of God is going to cultivate goodness in your life. The problem is the method was wrong enough that Nicodemus wasn't actually producing fruit. He wasn't really worshiping God. He wasn't coming before God and doing what was honorable and right. We can tell because when God arrived in the flesh, Nicodemus wasn't like, at last, it all makes sense. It's all coming together for me. No, he responds by getting confused. He's almost like cross-eyed. He just he can't even keep up with what Jesus is talking about. And if you look back at verse 12, Jesus says, I've told you earthly things. I'm, I'm telling you stuff that you should be able to believe, things that you can sense with the five senses that I gave you, yet you don't believe. So if you don't believe the easy stuff, then how am I supposed to explain heavenly things to you, which I know you don't even have the capacity to believe? What is Nicodemus lacking in this passage? He's lacking faith. He's lacking the ability to believe that something is possible that he can't quantify. If there's no empirical evidence for Nicodemus, he's going to struggle a little bit because he lives in this black and white law-based world. Nicodemus has been trying to get God to do what Nicodemus wants. He's been trying to pay God off with good works. And Jesus is asking him, like he asks us, to simply yield, to look. How much more passive can you be than just moving your eyeballs to something? It's not hard to do. We look at stuff all the time. Some of us look at things we don't even want to look at because it's so automatic. Yet it is the linchpin in Nicodemus, the difference between Nicodemus being made again in Jesus' name and being stuck in his own sin. Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, you got to follow more laws. Here, here's part two of the Old Testament. I wrote it for you so that you specifically can master these rules and get into heaven someday. He says, Nicodemus, remember that story about Moses where God and his people are walking in the wilderness and a bunch of snakes start biting them and they're dying and God tells Moses to build a snake made out of metal and put it on a rod and anybody who looks at it will be saved? Where's the science behind that, Nicodemus? 
How does that make any sense that venom in the bloodstream of a human being would become nullified based on where their eyeballs look? It doesn't make any sense because God honored their faith and he healed them because of it and that's the same process that Jesus uses. So I just want to call attention to you that even Jesus, very early in his ministry, his prescription for people that want to know God and be close to them, to him, is to look, is to behold. Look right at me. Look me right in the eyes is what Jesus is saying. And if you'll do that, something will change for you. Nicodemus, I know that what I teach is counterintuitive. I understand, Nicodemus, that I'm countercultural. I get that I'm asking you to let go of your spiritual moral empire and to become religiously homeless, in some ways to become religiously bankrupt, to give up all the good works that you've done, all the hard work and all the moral strength that you've built across all these years. I'm asking you to allow me to give you that when you need it and for you to let go of the version that you've built for yourself because it's, it's actually poisoning your soul, Nicodemus. To believe that you've earned something from God is totally turning the dynamic between you and God on its head and you're beginning to believe that God owes you something when that could never be true. Jesus said the same thing to me in Atlanta, Georgia, 11 years ago. This Jesus that's being held up in John chapter 3 is the same Jesus I saw in Isaiah 53. And church, if you are a believer, then you have seen Jesus too. But what I want to challenge you with today is the idea that you're not supposed to have just seen him once and then have never looked back again. Jesus is supposed to be a focal point for you and I. This is why this is an outcome of it all being about Jesus. If everything we do is about Jesus, we can't help but see him. We can't help but look to him. We will train our hearts, we'll train our emotions, we'll train our spirits to turn to him when things are challenging and to turn to him when things go well, to honor him and attribute to him glory when he cares for us and to run to him, begging him to do the same thing when things are not going well. But those are not gonna be automatic responses. We're gonna have to make a choice, like Nicodemus in John 3, to move our eyes The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, laid out this prescription for what it looks like to worship God rightly, to behold Jesus. He says this beginning in in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you would present, that you would bring your bodies as a living sacrifice. And in doing that, that it would be holy and acceptable to God, and that this would be your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world. I don't think Paul would have to say that if that wasn't a a very real possibility for you and I. But instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The reason that we chose the the word reforged to name this sermon series is, is the idea that Paul is communicating here, that you and I have to be shaped We have to be hammered. We have to be laid upon some anvil and then slammed over and over again until we take on a new shape. And what's natural for you and I is to lay our our lives over the anvil of the world, what the world values, what the world thinks is good, our own natural selfishness. And then the hammer that pounds us is stress, our whole lives. We just, things go wrong, we run out of money, we get sick, people hate us, the government falls apart, whatever. Something happens, it freaks us out, and then we, on that anvil, are slowly and surely shaped into the shape of humanity for the last however many thousands of years we've been here. And we're no different, and we don't wind up doing any good, and that's not what we should be striving for. What we should be doing is laying our lives over the anvil of Scripture. God's word is the thing that we get beat against. And who does the beating? It's the spirit of God. And I know that sounds really violent and negative, but it's good for you and I. Something is going to shape us. Something is going to introduce challenges and opportunities and choices to you and I. And if we're coming to God with our living bodies as if they were dead, saying to him, God, do whatever you want. Take me wherever you want me to go. Then the spirit will. He will hammer us. He will shape us. We will be transformed and it will start in our minds. This is the theological prescription for worship, for beholding Jesus. 
to present the physical parts of us to God so that our body and our spirit will be unified in worship. We can have what Nicodemus maybe never got. Nicodemus had all of the the rules and procedures and regulations, but his understanding of Scripture, his understanding of God was cold. It was unfeeling, impersonal. What Nicodemus needed to do, what you and I have the chance to do if we'll make our physical lives be our spiritual worship is we can take those rules and regulations and we can plug them into the heart of a living God. And then the whole thing will come alive. It won't feel cold. It won't feel unfeeling or negative or something that we have to keep at arm's length. Verse 2 of Romans 12 says that we can either be forged into the shape of the world or we can be made new beginning with our minds. And so I want to introduce the idea to you that you're worshiping something. Right now, you are. In your life. Maybe not like right this second. Hopefully you're worshiping God by listening to the Bible being preached. But in your life, there is something that is really, really valuable. I would say supremely valuable to you. Everybody has something like this. And really, worship is the only way that we know how to relate to and interact with the things that we love the most. We don't really have the capacity to be head over heels for something and then just turn that off all of a sudden. It's almost as if we were designed, isn't it, to be vessels of worship, to be about something bigger than ourselves. This is the reason why you and I love to climb the front range of the Chugach Mountains. And we just stand up there. That's the whole reason we went up there is just to stand and look. There's no paycheck up there for us. There's nobody waiting to meet all of our needs. We're tired, exhausted. It takes a lot of time. We get sunburned. It's hot. Why do we want that experience? Because in our souls, we long for a moment where we feel very small. We want to feel insignificant. We don't want to be made to feel small by another person, belittled emotionally and personally. We want to stand in the presence of something so big that we can barely wrap our minds around it. So when we approach things that aren't God and we, we use that, that stance, that position, we can get out of balance really quickly. It can be very possible for us to be a part of what God is doing at a church like this, but never really behold Jesus more than about 75 minutes a week on a Sunday morning. And even then, to be somehow wearing spiritual sunglasses, hoping that Jesus can't tell that even though we're in the room, our hearts are actually looking at something else. Idolatry puts your soul in danger, church. God always knows if his people are taking worship seriously, and historically, when they're not, he does not play games about that. Some of us need to hear this today. In Malachi uh, chapter 6, God says this to his people. Through the prophet Malachi, he communicates to them that they've been doing a lot of things right externally, but that their hearts are not in it. And this is how he responds to their, what looks like worship, but is not worship according to God. He says, oh, that there was one among you who would just shut the doors of the temple so that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God's saying, don't just stop. All this stuff that you're doing, it doesn't mean anything. It's a waste. It's negative to me. It's, it's taking you away from me because it's convincing you that you're okay. It's making you think that nothing's wrong, that, that you've bought me off somehow, so just stop. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you, verse 12, you profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted that its fruit, that is, that its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. In other words, who cares? That's how you and I would say it. The Lord's Supper, communion, baptism, gathering, it doesn't matter, who cares, right? It's just a bunch of stuff we have to do. Why does God even care? 
And God's going to answer that question. He says you snort at it. Isn't that funny? In other words, you roll your eyes. You go, God, good grief, we have to do more church stuff. You bring what has been taken by violence or what is lame or what is sick, and this you bring as your offering. This is a system where people are expected to bring animals and the best animal that they have to be their offering. That's why God is offended that, that they brought animals that were like struck by lightning or killed by a wolf in the field. The farmer will go, well, this lamb's already dead. I guess we'll just sacrifice that to God instead. That doesn't cost that farmer anything. That's why this isn't an honorable sacrifice to God. He says, you bring what's been taken by violence, what's lame, what's sick. Shall I accept that? says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, if you got something good at home and you bring God something that ain't good, you're a cheat. It's God's words. Cursed is what God says your life will be. I don't think that means you can't know God. I don't think that means you can't be a Christian. I think it's actually scarier than that to me. I think you could actually be saved and then have your life have changed very little at all. And to just walk through life like everybody else and and have anxiety and freak out all the time and worry with every waking moment that you have and barely be able to sleep and run after all the idols that you love. I think it's very possible to live like that and still know Christ personally. I think you can meet him once and then turn your back and walk the other way for the rest of your life. That's the danger, church. The danger is not that, "Uh uh-oh, I made a little mistake. Sorry, God, I guess I was worshiping an idol. Bummer. The danger is life and death for us. If we don't behold Jesus then what? God says that we're cheating him. God says, I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. You can get on board with that or I can do it on my own is what God is communicating here. Idolatry is dangerous because you might give your life to something that can't give you anything in return. It's easy to do. It's easy to keep telling yourself you're almost there. It's almost like chasing a high. If you've ever known a person who's been addicted to drugs or maybe you have been yourself, There's a diminishing return over time, and eventually you have to take such a large hit just to get you back to what used to be the the floor. The old floor becomes the new ceiling. You never get that first high again. And with our idols, we begin to believe things where we go, well, maybe I just need more time. Maybe I haven't tried hard enough. Maybe it's the next promotion that'll fill my cup. Maybe it's my next wife who will really make me happy. Maybe if we have another kid, then it'll fill my life up. These are the things that we start chasing And if we're not looking to Jesus, nothing else is going to take our eyes off of that stuff for us. Only Jesus is magnetic enough, like that moment in my life, to draw all of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, away from ourselves and to him. And then he'll heal it. He'll fix it for us. But we prefer to stay comfortable. We prefer to to offer physical offerings but keep our hearts to ourselves. I talked about wearing spiritual sunglasses. This is like what God is describing here is, is like going on a date with your wife and instead of looking at her, looking at all the other women in the restaurant the whole time. God's like, I don't want to go on that date with you. I would prefer to stay home. It would be better for me than to go out with you and then have me be drugged through the mud by you looking everywhere else but me. So, so claim me and look at me and let's do this together or, or let's just shut the doors is what he says. It's just, I wish somebody had the... The guts to do it. Just shut the doors. You know you're faking it. You all know that. Just walk away. You'll come back. When you come back, you'll be ready. You'll have some suffering in your life and you'll realize that you need me. And that's the pattern that God uses in the Old Testament with his people to discipline them. But he's warning us that we don't have to go down that road. We have a chance to behold Jesus every day and to have our lives transformed. So what do we do? If beholding Jesus feels abstract to you or obtuse, I want to be specific. I want to help you understand how you can start investing in your ability to see Jesus clearly today, right now. 
So I've got three points of application for you, and I'll tell you that unlike the last two weeks, we've already read these passages. They're very long, and so I'm just going to give you the reference point, and then I'm going to tell you what I think that application is and explain it to you. The first is this. If you would like to behold Jesus, then first you need to renovate your consciousness. Now, I know your Bible in Romans 12 says renew your mind, and that's good, but when we read a verse like that, sometimes it starts to be a buzz phrase for us, and it kind of just gets foggy, and we don't know what it means. So I just, I just typed in renew and mind into the the source website and this is what I got. So maybe this a little bit of a change in language will shake you up a little bit. Here's what I'm getting at though. If we we think about renovation, renewing isn't something that we think about a ton maybe unless we're like uh, into beauty products. That seems like something that gets printed a lot on stuff that is really expensive at Walmart that I've seen. But renovation is something I can connect with. Maybe it's because I'm a man more. I could turn on HGTV and I understand, okay, if we're talking about renovation, then it's implied that we're going to be demolishing something and then building something new in its place. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says renew. That it's going to be necessary for you and I to tear down some old mental and spiritual structures in our lives to make room for something new. It's very possible that our ability to behold Jesus will be limited by old structures put in place when we were pursuing our own wickedness before we came to Christ in the first place. And so you're going to need to tear down your allegiance to some things. Probably first and foremost is your philosophy of life. Many of us who live in America have bought into the idea that the best thing you can do for yourself is make yourself into somebody. Just muscle your way through it. Get stronger, get better, get sharper, and develop yourself to the point where you're worth knowing and you're worth hiring and you're worth promoting. And that's just not what Jesus preached. I'm not questioning the validity of that in the workplace. Certainly, if you have a job, you should work hard. That is a biblical principle. But when you bring that work hard at work to make a paycheck mentality into your home and into the church, you get it twisted quickly. Maybe not everybody does, but many people do. And we start to pursue God by our own excellence instead of waiting on God to reveal what he wants to us. Instead of being people who receive, we're trying to be people who are always bringing something, always giving something. And beholding Jesus according to what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 is about looking at him and letting him do the work in our hearts, spiritually, letting go of that that increasing anxiety that we feel as we try to white-knuckle our way through our circumstances. You might need to tear down your political allegiance. You might need to tear down the way that you were taught to handle conflict by your parents. You may need to tear down your attitude toward money or your parenting strategy. The sky is the limit, but it's implied in the scriptures that if you're not going to be banged over the anvil of the world, but instead shaped by the spirit of God over the scriptures of God, that something has to tear down and be rebuilt mentally for you. And that that spiritual worship that includes your whole body begins right here in your head. So open yourself to that idea. Make a decision to be available to an HGTV-style demo day in your life. Probably the way that that will work its way out is you asking other people to be honest with you about what they see in your life. Take somebody to lunch. Buy them lunch. They may not even be able to eat it because they'll be so shocked when you tell them why you wanted to meet with them. But buy them lunch and ask them to tell you the truth about yourself. My friend, I love you. You're close to me. What is wrong with me? Just start there. If you're meeting with a Christian brother or sister, they'll probably be careful. They may not tell you everything at once. They might need some time to see how you respond to the little things before they bring out the big ones. But you have an opportunity to allow another person to help you understand what Jesus would have your life look like versus what your life looks like. And then you can move your attention away from all of the things that were just kind of baked into you as you grew up as a child in your early 20s, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, however old you are. You can begin to let go of those things and replace them with who Jesus is, but you're never going to do it if you're not looking at him. 
And the more you do this, the more you will have room to look to Christ. Second, you need to consider God's value. I play a little game with myself most days where I like to ask myself just randomly, what part of God's character can be displayed by what I'm doing now? You may have heard people ask this question this way, how can I glorify God in this moment? Well, that's good and helpful. We have to be careful that we don't lean too far into what we can do for God. But the idea is, can I connect the God of the universe who sometimes feels like he's 95 billion miles away from my everyday circumstances, can I connect him to what I'm doing right now? Can I try to see how there's grace for me in this moment exactly where I am? And can I turn my Christianity into something that I walk with every moment of my life? Am I able to do that? I know I'm a pastor, so this probably feels like a cop-out to you for me that I could connect my work to Jesus But I'm talking about the normal parts of my day. Like, how does God's sacrificial sacrificial love for me have anything to do with my trip to the grocery store? Well, I think it's gracious of God to allow me to have access to many different kinds of food that I enjoy. And I think that that's worth acknowledging and thanking him for. And I don't have to be cheesy about that. I don't have to post that on Facebook for it to make it up to heaven, okay? I can have that relationship and experience with God personally, intimately, privately, while I'm in the checkout lane. Or my gym time, what in the world does that have to do with God? I'm just trying to build my own body up, right? That probably um, predetermines that I'm going to be a little more inclined toward idolatry of self because I'm working on my own body. But what I think I do when I'm at the gym is I exercise this miraculous system that God put together. That my body can flex and bend and, and carry and lift and adapt and heal when I overdo it is amazing to me. The intention behind that, that it's not just an accident, that it's not just, God was like, oh yeah, that actually worked out way better than I thought, but that he has knit us. Knitting takes a long time. That's what the Bible says God has done for us. While we were still growing inside of our mother's bodies, God was knitting us, he was building us. And I think that's miraculous to me. I think that that means that when I get to church on Sunday, when I come to Life Group on a Wednesday night, I can bring with me a week's worth of examples that God has been good to me. I don't have to only worship God when he heals people of cancer. I don't have to only worship God when he helps people survive horrible tragedies, car accidents, divorces. Those are good things to worship him for, but there's a whole lot of smaller examples of Jesus working in my day all day long that are worth looking to him for. And if I don't do that, I run the threat of like his people in Malachi just going through the motions, disconnecting the heart of worship from the actions of worship. And then the actions of worship are not actions of worship anymore. They're just silly, according to God. Finally, looking for Jesus. John 3. Let's go back to where we started with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, is doing everything right, and God sa- Jesus says to him, you just need to look at me. You need to find me, Nicodemus. L- look above the heads of the crowd around you and find that serpent on the pole and look to him. And you keep your eyes on that serpent. If it moves, your eyes move. If it goes to a new place, you go with it so you can stay close enough to see it. You follow that thing. And that thing is me, Jesus says. I am the Son of Man. I will do that for you. So if I want to behold Jesus, I need to have my eyes open. I need to expect him to show up in my day. I should expect to hear from him when I open his word. I need to probably set my day up so that the bits of time between meetings and projects that I have all day long are not inclined toward selfishness, but are inclined toward Jesus instead. So just specifically, these are examples, opportunities that you have. This probably looks like curating the music that you listen to during the day, which is constantly communicating messages to your mind and your heart all day long, okay? I'm not necessarily saying that you need to listen to the Christian radio station all day long. In in my opinion, a lot of top 40 Christian songs are really just thinly veiled self-help set to music anyway. But I am saying find music that talks about God the way that God talks about himself. There's your litmus test. If a song says about God what God says about himself in scripture, then it's worth me listening to over and over again, repeating. 
letting it just course through my life in the background. Listen to scripture. You know that every audio streaming platform that's available now has like the whole Bible for you. And you can just turn it on. Like you don't have to be a, a, a rich king or lord in the 15th century to have somebody follow you around and read God's word to you. You could just snap it in with your phone, wherever you are, and just have scripture running. I don't want that to become mindless for you, but it's an opportunity to plug into the small gaps and spaces in your day who Jesus is and look for him. Find somebody who will read the Bible with you. They don't even have to be a Christian, believe it or not. You would get so much out of just meeting with another person, whether a Christian or not, and asking them, would you read a book of the Bible with me? Go a chapter a week, a chapter a month. You could just go as far as you get each time and then pick it up the next time. Very little would be better for you than that, than taking the time to work through God's word with another person in community. And you'll begin to see Jesus around you. You'll begin to understand that, that he has so much more for you than just grimacing your way through a worship service on Sunday morning. That's far from his idea of what it means for you to be looking to him and to be set free by that looking. So church, what I'm asking you to do, what I hope you can hear in these application points is that you need to do something to interrupt the automatic idol factory that is your heart. You just need to throw a wrench into that thing. Stop that automatic process of taking things that are not of supreme value and holding them up and making them of supreme value because God has more for you than that. See him clearly, see him honestly, and respond to what you see by just soaking up his beauty, his majesty, his glory. He'll make your mind new. He'll reveal himself to you and you will behold him high and lifted up. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the chance uh, to communicate your word this morning. When I think about worship, I think about beholding you, God. I think we're, we're pretty good about what we do on Sundays. I believe that. I think we've been faithful to you and we've invested where we needed to to be able to gather well and to be honest about that gathering, God, to not have it be too much flash in the pan. Um, but but I, what I'm asking you to do is to change the other six days of the week for us. You would help us understand how, really how modular our lives are and how programmable we are as human beings and that we would take some responsibility for that, that we would take some responsibility for how we have programmed ourselves, how we've programmed our hearts and our minds, what it is that's discipling us. And I ask you, God, that you would make it important for no other reason than I, I think you'll get a lot out of it and we will too, that you would help us to prioritize your word, you would help us to prioritize seeing you rightly and clearly, that we would figure out what the Bible says about your character and then we would find ways to reinsert to inject that truth into our lives into our days so father we love you um, we trust you to do what you will in our lives god i pray that as we continue to work through this vision as a church that you will continue to rejuvenate renovate reforge us god and that we will be a better example of your body when it's all said and done we love you and we pray in jesus name amen